0: Hey, I'm Justin,
1: and I'm Vivian,
0: and we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Le Fonds de Recherche du Québec, and powered by Neuro, the next-generation mental health
1: platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia.
0: And on today's episode, we'll be talking about how to adapt to COVID nineteen. You know, it's been affecting us all recently, and it's been over a year now that we're going through this. And so, it was very interesting for us to interview two scientists, two students, graduate students, who have very interesting perspectives on you know how best to approach you know daily life situations.
1: And what I love about this episode is how candidly they shared about what it looks like in their personal life. So, what habits they have undertaken during COVID to adapt. And uh, Manish shares a lot. Tool, right, right. He shares a lot about his meditation practice. And so we hope that for all the listeners, you'll be able to glean some of uh, their tips for um, your own adaptation to this weird time we're living in.
0: So please welcome Elias Jabur, master's in experimental medicine at McGill and our very own mental health researcher here at Neuro. And Manish Gern, self proclaimed psychedelic scientist who has his own YouTube channel, Instagram page. You can go follow him and also a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill as well.
1: Without further ado, let's dive right in. Great. So, Elias, we're so happy to have you on this podcast. Our first guest. Our first guest, yes. And we would like you to start with a few sentences introducing yourself. So your name, uh, what you do right now, and uh, yeah, just an interesting fact about yourself.
2: Perfect, well thanks first uh, for inviting me, this is a wonderful opportunity. Uh, My name is Elias, I'm a graduate student from McGill, I recently graduated from experimental medicine. I'm originally from Lebanon um, and I currently work as a research coordinator at the McGill Health Center.
0: Awesome, and what was your thesis on, if I can ask?
2: So I worked on cancer epigenetics, I work in a very rare type of brain tumors in children that's very lethal. And I switched completely now to neonatology, which is the epidemiology
0: of newborns. That's so cool. Do you know? Uh, so you must know Michael Meany. I don't. You don't? No. He's the one that like started epigenetics. Um, Myc- oh. Michael Meany, yeah. He's from okay. Montreal. He's like at the Douglas and he started that. Oh, the Douglas. Do you know okay. epigen- I don't know
1: mm. Michael Meany. Michael Meany?
0: Look him up. He's like awesome. I will. <laughs> Yeah. So that's cool. So how long, well, we'll start with our signature question.
1: Okay. You start first, Justin, with this question. So
0: Elias, we're Friday today, right? What were you doing on a Friday night as a graduate student?
2: As a graduate student in in a non uh, global pandemic world,
0: Friday night
2: was the time to relax. Um, I guess it's you know the end of the week. You've been doing your experiments for the entire week, so that's the time where you call your friends and you try to organize an outing. You go to your local bar, Mm -hmm. you go to a party, you hang out with friends, you have dinner. So many opportunities.
0: So many opportunities. That's true. What were you doing, Vivian?
1: hanging out having a glass of wine. I don't even remember <laughs> what
0: a Friday night looked like back after, like it seems like with the a pandemic, it's like the whole world changed. I don't even remember what we were doing before. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Correct. Well, we're really yeah. interested in, in knowing how the pandemic has affected your life and, and mental health specifically. And, uh, you know, the stats say that 72% of grad students report that their feelings of anxiety and depression have increased since the pandemic, but it seems like for you that the pandemic didn't seem to have that same negative effect on your mental health. So we wanted to ask you a bit about how, yeah, what was your secret? What, how did the pandemic not affect you as much as it did the general student population?
2: Absolutely. So it was actually a gradual process, you know, it's uh, at the onset of the pandemic, there was this whole ambiguity surrounding the whole situation. And that was definitely stressful for me as a graduate student as much as uh, for everyone else. Um, and, you know, in terms of its impact on, on my progression, of my thesis, having to, you know, stay at home instead of doing, doing work in my laboratory. Um, that was a little bit stressful at first. And that took me a lot of time to adapt to the fact that I have to sit at home, uh, unmentored for a specific amount of time, not being able to reach out to people, um, having to rely on myself, and you know, develop this tendency to be independent and drive my research forward. So I guess that was th- the good stress behind it that motivated me to develop an a- develop an attitude and an approach to my to my project. Um, I wouldn't say I'm I I'm not as stressed as other people. I would say I've just adapted to it, um, and I you know there's there's habits that I come up with every single day now oh, that I work.
0: Yeah.
2: I, yeah, so now that I work, um, I try to have a lock sheet of what are the things that I'm doing uh, within the hour, and whenever I feel like staring at the screen for three consecutive hours with no interaction with human beings. Um, if, and if that becomes too much for me I just pause I call you know my face my my, my phone is always right next to me i just FaceTime the, the first available person and try to talk to someone just ask them about their day tell them about my day if there's a colleague that I can help I'll just find a good opportunity to socially interact with someone keep the human connection it, right mm-hmm.
1: that's
2: correct saying. yes um and and that helps um, and whenever I'm done I always try whenever possible to try to Go outside, walk mm-hmm. even if I'm not, you know, going inside of stores, even if the malls are closed, just try to walk outside. Feel feel that y- you still have something that you can do outside of your apartment, outside of three or four walls. Um, so that's something that I try to do, and I prioritize having to walk outside every single day at least once whenever I can throughout the day. Um, and whenever possible, I try to work out, exercise at home, try to sweat it off because you know, we're sitting at home, we're sitting at the chair for. Seven seven consecutive hours. It's always good to, you know, turn the screen on, put some music on, and release some heat. That's great.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you you recently took the initiative, too, to join Neuro. So I'm guessing that prioritizing your mental health was also something that that really... Um, you know, came to you during the pandemic. Can you talk to us a bit about how you got interested in mental health and from, you know, brain cancer to mental health? What was that jump for you like?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So thanks for bringing that up, because that's a uh, that's a question that we've discussed with just stand here uh, before, um, I guess. I, I like many other people, thought I would be immune to mental health problems that, you know, we're young, or we have all the energy, we have all the time in the world, we can just work, work, work and grind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I was doing until the onset of the pandemic. And yeah, I was talking about this whole ambiguity surrounding the situation and having to, you know, abruptly adapt to a new lifestyle, sit at home and disconnect from people at least physically um, that was challenging for me and back then I had my graduate project that I you know I had graduate responsibilities I was still involved with the extracurricular activities I was volunteering I had a lot of things that I was doing Mm -hmm. at the same time Um, and I guess I was so focused on all those things that I forgot my responsibility towards myself and I forgot to give myself the time that I needed you know we're always inclined to help other and contribute to society but if you're not in a good place yourself you're not going to help other people get into the right place if you are stressed out you cannot help someone who is stressed out as well so you need to also take care of yourself and I guess that is just going through that episode of losing a sudden interest in everything and having to you know just focus on the now and and not being able to plan things on the long term made me you know reflect at night every single day made me think about mental health acknowledge that yes I am stressed out yes I am you know down today yes I I lost my interest in all those things but also acknowledge the good things yes I'm excited that I've made progress yes I'm happy about my project Mm -hmm. and having to acknowledge these emotions makes you Mm makes you at least clarify these intermingled thoughts and emotions that go in your head and, you know, delineate them, have them into points and, you know, see, okay, what am I stressed out about? Why am I happy about? And see what are your approaches regarding all those things. And that going through that episode made me more aware and conscious that everyone can go through mental health. Everyone has an episode that they're down. Everyone has an episode where they're super high and they're super up and they're super upbeat and excited. And it's good to know these things because if you know them at this early on in your stage, you will prioritize having a personal work-life balance. You will prioritize working towards your career, dedicating all that time for for, for your academic uh, responsibilities, for your professional responsibilities, but also for your own responsibilities, for your responsibility towards the people that surround you for your loved ones. And a big important thing that I realized was when you acknowledge your emotions, you find it easier to reach out to people and talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I tended to undermine for a big chunk of my life. Um, where I would see mental health as a, as a thing that not everyone would relate to, that talking about your emotions is not something that you can easily do just because not everyone would understand what you're talking about, right. but a big step. me to overcome that was acknowledge the fact that i am stressed out that stress is something other people are feeling and then talking about it helps me process it talking about it helps me see where other people can help me um so the way i would do it is before the pandemic i would just you know talk to someone we would go for a coffee walk talk and just you know process it and then release that tension and then now during the pandemic, I still do it. If I'm feeling sad, I call the person that I can. I call my person, uh, someone who, you know, can relate, someone who I feel confident and comfortable enough talking about these things. Yeah. And that- you're
0: lucky to have these people because not everyone has, <laughs> you know, somebody to talk to and that, you, that you're open to talk to them about these feelings because a lot of people are, you know, they're scared, right? They're stigmatized. And that's the whole point of Neuro is to open those, that barrier, you know, and uh, encourage people to start the conversation, talk to their surroundings, talk to the people who, who love them about how they feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about in research how we have to define how we feel, not by illness definition, like I, saying, I feel depressed today. What does that mean? You know, we have to define how we feel with the emotions that we feel, like we have five primary emotions. Do we feel sad? Do we feel anxious? Do we feel disgusted? What, how do we feel? And the fact of saying it, writing it down, like you said, Elias, is so important.
1: Right. I think acknowledging your emotions is such a big step. It's a huge step. And then reaching out. So like actually having the courage to say, I yeah. am sad. Can someone help me?
0: <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's amazing. You're, really, it's, it's amazing that you can do that and yeah. you know that's that's why you're so joyous today and you you know <laughs> you found that balance i yeah. find do you, you find that you found the balance
2: i i think i'm still handling it. it's a work in progress yeah. but you do see something that is important to highlight just now where um mental health is you know just like other fields of medicine um the best therapy is precautionary in the sense that you do not wait until you have that episode where you're extremely down, Mm -hmm. it's always good to just if you're feeling a little bit down, that's still okay. You can talk about it. And you know, I didn't know I had my support group until I tried. And that's something that I encourage people to you don't know who those people who around you will understand because you're all not willing to talk about it. But once you do, Mm -hmm. once you discover who those people around you who understand who can relate, Mm -hmm. you'll find it easier to just talk about it. And it's it becomes a normal Conversation, and give and take,
0: what, right? They're gonna share with correct. you their emotions. You're gonna share. Absolutely. And you know, you immigrated from Lebanon. H- how long ago?
2: So that was two years. Two, two years, years ago.
0: ago. Yes. So, what were the challenges that you faced as a graduate student, um, international student, in terms of funding, in terms of finding your social ne- network, your new se- social network in the city,
1: cultural adaptation?
0: Absolutely. So thank you for bringing that up.
2: Um, I would say I it, it wasn't my first time immigrating. I had done a previous exchange semester at Boston a year a year before, and that kind of you know galvanized me to find opportunities in North America and decide that you know North America is the place where I want to immigrate, commit, and work for the rest of my life. So that excitement at first helped me adapt. It was definitely a transition, nonetheless. It was a stressful transition, just having to handle the immigration procedures, the legal work, the legal, I'm sorry, paperwork, um, having to adapt to to a new place and also handle the financial aspect of it where, you know, you're a new city, you don't know what your expenses are, uh, but you also need to focus on your job, I'm sorry, your your academic responsibilities or your project. So there were a lot of things that were happening at the same time. And I would say throughout my first year, that um, the overwhelming amount of, uh, stressors uh, kind of discouraged me from 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 my passion towards science and it was not until my second year that I regained my passion towards science and I and I truly realized what was the reason that made me immigrate to Canada which is you know my research involvement that I'm interested in research and there's so many opportunities here in Canada so definitely immigration is is something you know being an immigrant is a big factor and that adds a lot of stress and that stress became more important and palpable uh, at the onset of the pandemic. Uh, and I guess a big part of it was we didn't know where our status was. Nobody would ask, nobody would answer our questions. You know, we would hear a news covering the, the pandemic and its impact on the economy and the businesses for locals, but nobody talked about immigrants. Nobody talked about internationals. And from what I know, I think Montreal or Quebec has 4% four, of four percent. Of, uh, four percent I might be wrong with that information, I'm not going to dwell on it, but a big, a significant proportion of students is um, international. I think, you know, at McGill, yeah, for sure. um, so we, we, we felt a little bit left out, I would say at first. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of assistance that was being provided and we were not sure if that applies to us um but i was i was lucky enough to have mcgill and you know reach out to mcgill uh faculties and resources and you know, email those people who are involved and tell them about my situation tell them hi uh, my name is alice i'm an international student this is this is happening this is my situation what are resources that i can explore mm-hmm. and everyone was being supportive everyone would say everyone would give you a definite answer say this is not something that is applicable to your situation but this is something that you can explore mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there were so many unknowns during the pandemic and everyone was trying to figure things out and you really had to be proactive to go get th- the answers that you needed. Um, so kind of thinking about, you know, this idea of proactiveness, I'm kind of interested in knowing, Elias, um, what were the lessons, if you were to reflect back on your grad school experience, what do you think were biggest some of the biggest lessons that you took away from from your grad school experience? Maybe proact- being proactive is, is one of them. I know it was for me.
2: Um, there were definitely a lot of lessons that I learned during my graduate, um, program and in my graduate experience, I guess one of them is definitely be proactive. If you want to get involved with something, if you want to find something that interests you, jump on things, jump onto the next opportunity and try, try it because you're not going to know whether you like a thing before you actually try it. And that's something that I learned. Um, And it's okay to try things that you do not like. It's okay. Okay to
0: it's,
2: make mistakes. You, definitely. You, you, if you do not make mistakes, you're never going to learn. Um, and another thing would be, and that's something that I, I prioritize though, is that having that personal work-life balance. As a graduate student, a graduate student you're always, you know, you have your project. You want to make the best out of it. You want to dedicate all your time to make sure all your experiments work, all your research works, all your analyses work. You want to progress as fast as possible. But, you know, you cannot truly give that entire time to your project because that's not a sustainable and long-term possibility. You still need some time for yourself. And even when you move towards the workforce, that's still something you need to do. You, you, when you're starting a new job, you want to stand out, you want to impress, you want to you know, tell the people that hired you why they hired you, but you cannot do that on the long run if you forget your responsibility towards yourself.
1: That's a really good point, I think, of not just being a grad student that churns out all these papers and you know has that a pressure robot. to publish. Yeah, but but a well-rounded individual who has skills that are going to be applicable to the workplace, That that's really that's valuable. That's the main
0: takeaway from our conversation today, I think. Eli- Elias, you, you, you're involved in so many things. Like, as an outsider, I'm like, how are you not overwhelmed with everything? <laughs> but you have that balance, you have that... Family, friends, that network that supports you, which is amazing. Especially, you're in another country. Your family is far away, but you still, ha- you know, have them close by with Zoom or FaceTime, which is amazing. And I think that's a crucial component of of our, of our mental health and how to sustain it. And we were talking about you're saying that you have to try things you don't like, make mistakes to learn. What was your biggest failure?
1: Ooh, I love that question.
0: I always ask that question because i like, so good. Wow. <laughs> Take a what moment.
2: What was my biggest failure? <laughs> hmm. That's an interesting question. I guess my biggest mistake was what I was talking a, a lot about throughout my the podcast was forgetting my responsibility towards yourself, you know, as you mentioned, I was involved in multiple things. I had responsibilities that were, you know, volunteering, circulars, uh, my academic responsibilities. I also had, you know, my family that I needed to talk to. There were a lot of things that I was doing, and perhaps me not being able to schedule those things or organize those things throughout the day was my biggest mistake. Because if you if you don't if you walk into a day being fully impromptu and you're not good at handling those abrupt changes that becomes overwhelming on the long run. And that could potentially put you at a risk of, you know, losing a grip over all those things that you're doing and losing interest towards the thing and things that you were doing. And I guess that was my biggest mistake, having Google, going going through that period of time where I suddenly lost interest in all the things that I was doing because I was so overwhelmed because I was constantly stressed out. Um, and that's something that took me a lot of time to recover, and it was a work in progress, and it involved multiple people, not just myself, and that's a mistake that you, I think you learn from uh, for the rest of your life, that's one of those mistakes that you kind of need to not commit, but you need to acknowledge, or you need to see whether you going through it, or seeing another person going through it, uh, for you to become primed, to take care of yourself but also take care of people and ever since that period of time i i would notice who among my peers is might be going through those same things might be you know in a stressful situation might be losing interest towards their project and you know finding it easy to talk to those people because you've been through that you can talk about your own personal experience you can tell them what you've learned so that they avoid going through it
0: so that's that's great so you- You know, generally you live without any regrets, all your failures, you transform them into fuel for your your life, for your future. It's great. And last question for you, what is your one recommendation for our listeners today? Graduate students, some professors, mostly graduate students. What would you recommend in general to keep up their mental health?
2: Um, Yes, um, I'm gonna. My only recommendation is um, acknowledge, acknowledge your emotions. Because if you remain in denial of the fact that you're stressed, that you're perhaps not excited about things, how are going? Um, that could lead to a lot of pent up energy that you could otherwise be handling. That could be a lot of, you know, emotions that you could translate and turn into something positive. If you're stressed out. Acknowledge that you're stressed out and see what is the source of that stress. Is it something that I can manage? Can I turn it into a positive stress? Can I turn it into an energy to motivate me to, you know, progress more uh, in terms of my project, in terms of my personal life? Just acknowledge it. And that's a big, big, big factor towards improving mental health. Acknowledging that everyone can feel certain emotion. Everyone can feel stressed out, anxious, depressed, but also happy, uh, excited about things. Acknowledge your emotions. That's my only recommendation for my listeners today.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much Thanks, for being somebody. with us. It's, it was a pleasure. I, it's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about this, uh, you know, um, for a while after. It's, you know, in summary, acknowledge your emotions. Have a strong support network. Yeah, a strong right? support network. Yeah, have time for yourself. Keep a routine, you know, working out, going outside, taking walks and participate in all kinds of activities. Even if you're not gonna like them, try them and you know, hope for the best, maybe something's gonna stick. <laughs> so thank you so much, Elias, thank you, Elias.
2: Thank you so much for having me and I really appreciate the work you do.
0: Awesome, see you next, next <laughs> lab meeting, research <laughs> next meeting we have. Research meeting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good? Okay, good job. Welcome to the Neuro Podcast. Today we have Manish Grimm, a PhD student in neurosciences at McGill, considered the psychedelic scientist. (laughs) We're very excited to have you on Manish. How are you doing tonight?
3: Yes, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Pleasure.
1: Great. So one thing that we love asking all of our guests that come on this podcast is what would you be doing on a Friday night as a grad student?
3: What, what would I be doing on Friday night as a grad student? Yes.
1: Yeah. So what before is a typical the pandemic. Fr- yeah, before the pandemic, what would a typical Friday night look like for you?
3: huh So good question. Hmm. What would it be doing? Probably um, hanging out with my girlfriend, maybe having a movie night with her. Or if the weather's nice, uh, just walking around, going, uh, seeing what's outside, just literally just getting out of the house and exploring mm-hmm. and, and enjoying the city. Right. Uh, awesome. Either that or... I'll uh, probably be maybe reading, <laughs> uh, reading or playing my guitar or something along those lines. Wow. Nice. And
1: oh, cool. You play the guitar. I do as well. That's fun. Yeah.
3: Great. Great. Yeah.
0: So, so those are activities that pretty much
3: stayed the same during the pandemic as well? Yeah, more or less, to be honest. Like, the only thing that changed was seeing other people than my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> is that getting too much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we found ways to make it work. But yeah, definitely the thing that's different with the pandemic is uh, hanging out with other friends and you know me hanging out with her friends' groups and her hanging out with mine and et cetera. Uh, it's less of that. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully soon uh, we'll come back. <laughs>
0: right. Awesome. So can you talk to us a little bit about your PhD project in summary mm-hmm. a little bit?
3: Yeah, so my uh, PhD itself is on the default mode network. So I do fMRI brain imaging research. And um, I have three, four projects this characterizing the default mode network in different ways, uh, you could say. Um, one of these, uh, I just describe each one a little bit. Like one is using a task that I, I designed, kind of adapted um, from past work. Uh, we obviously have, we haven't collected data yet that COVID kind of put a stall on that but um, kind of seeing how does the default network encode um, kind of priors or expectations for for perception mm-hmm. and how, how does kind of um, kind of priming somebody by uh, causing them to remember a certain context let's say how does that bias the processing of a subsequent stimulus and how does that relate to connections between default network and perceptual regions for example a lot of people think the default network is involved in daydreaming and we're not like focused on the external world but we're trying to show how it, it is really involved in that
0: yeah so tell us a little bit more for our audience who maybe you know,
3: they don't know about the default mode network what
1: like is me it? Oh, there you go <laughs> okay, what yeah, totally, it, totally. is
0: it yeah yeah
3: totally so the default mode network is a network of brain regions um that does a lot of interesting things so uh, this network is heavily involved in basically any process uh, associated with memory so it's involved when you're planning or imagining the future, when you're remembering the past, when you're reflecting on who you are and what your traits are and your likes and dislikes, et cetera. Um, it's involved in kind of understanding movies, let's say, understanding narratives. Uh, we kind of use it to, to parse our experience in these high-level ways, we could say. And, um, and so this network is obviously involved in so many different aspects of our day-to-day functioning. And, um, but like when it was first discovered, People thought like it was discovered in the context of when people weren't focused on a task. So it's like when you're focusing on a deliberate task in the external environment, the default mode network becomes deactivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're just left alone to your own devices to do whatever you want, it becomes more active. So then you're like, oh, like what's it doing? And uh, kind of what the research suggests is that it's involved when we're daydreaming and mind wandering in our own world. Because Obviously when we're in that state, we're thinking about, our past, our future, imagining um, our interactions, social interactions, not a big component of it, et cetera. But with my research, I'm showing like, yeah, it's involved in those things, but it also facilitates interaction with the external world. It's not only these memory processes that are internal. Um, this is kind of stuff that my supervisor does, and this is, I'm building on that in my research.
1: And how would it facilitate interaction?
3: So for example, again, it's, it's very involved in memory, right? And mm-hmm. when we... Um, experience the world uh we often do it through our expectations right mm-hmm. uh, this kind of so-called predictive coding approaches it's like we we'll, when we see when we enter a certain context we expect certain things to be there mm-hmm. like you you enter into if you're at a beach you expect water you expect maybe trees uh like uh, people on towels or sitting on the sand etc and so your brain based on its past memory of similar contexts, is kind of loading these expectations and so you could say that whole process um, is, involves a deep DeepMod network. Oh. And this applies to social context. If you go into a club, you're expecting certain people to be behaving a certain thing. You go into an office, it's different. Um, so the idea is that through it creating these representations of context and scenes, DeepMod network is it's what's allowing us to make those expectations. Interesting. And
0: is it something that is strengthened by sleep or by not doing anything? Or is it something that we are born with
3: and just stays the same? throughout our lives. Mm. I, I think the main thing that kind of maybe builds that is this experiences, diversity of experiences. And um, I guess, you know, the amount to which we'll have expectations or a model for a particular right. context is depends on how much we're exposed to it, right? right, right. So it is very it,
0: flexible in that sense.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And what are you finding in terms of looking at the fMRI? Are you finding that the default mode network lights up differently for different individuals or is it largely similar regions? Um, can you mm-hmm.
3: talk a bit about the fMRI work that you do? Yeah, for sure. So for this project, we actually haven't collected data yet. So I'm just going based on past studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it, it's the case that um, there are differences across people, of course, and, and again, that's probably linked to how much experience they have on how and various other like personality factors and whatever. But um, uh, in general, um, there's a connected there's connectivity between the default mode network and regions involved in, for example, executive function, perhaps cognitive control, um, and even like like visual areas, like straight to visual cortex as well. Um, So it seems that, you know, uh, beyond the initial role thought of the DFAMO network where it's just involved in so-called internally directed cognition, it's like, no, it could dynamically interact with these other networks which are involved in external perception. And that's, uh, you know, pretty constant across uh, people in in certain kind of task paradigms or contexts. Yeah.
0: And you know, is that is there any link between the default mode network and your interest in psychedelics?
3: Yeah, totally. So psychedelics are fascinating because um, one of the things they can do, and, and kind of one of their effects that seems to have a lot of therapeutic uh, relevance, is your ability to induce these experiences where you feel one with everything, where you uh-huh. uh, you dissolve your sense of being an individual person located in this body. And You just kind of blend with everything, and you feel this unitive oneness experience. People often experience it as a very euphoric and like um, almost sacred state. They use all these kinds of terms. It's right. very significant and meaningful, etc. Um, and there is research uh, linking it to the default mode network to some degree, mm. uh, which again makes sense because if you think about our sense of identity, it's rooted in our memories, our stories we tell ourselves. I'm this person. I have been this person. I'm going to be that person. These so-called autobiographical narratives, and these are um, kind of mediated, perhaps by by default network. And so, with psychedelics, they they make the default network much less integrated within itself, among other things. And so, it's kind of disrupting the normal patterns of connectivity, which presumably are what disrupt our sense of self.
0: Interesting. And then we would be able to reconnect everything afterwards with new, more positive experiences, or.
3: That's often, yeah, that's, that's, how that's how it's described a lot of the time. But um, again, this is pretty speculative and we don't know for sure, but it, it seems very intuitive that something like that is going on. And, and Manesh,
0: what got you interested in all this research and psychedelics or default mode network? Was there something particular that, that got you interested in this?
3: Yeah, for, for me, it came through an interest in meditation, and wow. uh and this kind of thing so when i was like i don't know 10th grade 11th grade uh, i was going through kind of a rough time i was kind of a lot of my friends who were my friends in earlier years kind of turned on me and i was kind of bullied mm-hmm. by them and mistreated mm-hmm. and i was kind of in a dark place in a sense and there was this person uh, he's like a career counselor dude at my high school uh, really interesting like older older man and uh he gave me a book on zen buddhism so he's like, Oh, I feel like you'll like this. And Zen is like, obviously a very meditative tradition of meditating to attain alignment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating. I'm like, this is a way of training and stilling the mind in order to gain greater, greater clarity on our lives and live from a greater place of contentedness. And that's kind of, um, motivated me an in interest in kind of how we can so radically change how we perceive and operate in the world, um, through training our minds in a sense. And this led me to interest in other kind of spiritual topics um, like Eastern mysticism, East and West and, and philosophy. And eventually I got to, I found a book um, where I came to through my various readings to a book talking about LSD-assisted psychotherapy. So It was a book written in uh, 1975, I believe, called LSD psychotherapy by the psychiatrist Stan Groff. Basically, he did over 4,000 ses- sessions of, with people with high-dose LSD. And had meticulous notes on it all, and he was describing how these people routinely went into these deep uh, mystical spiritual states that usually only you know meditators after twenty years could get into, right. um, and, and and really the people were just entering uh, states of consciousness, consciousness that you'll read in just like the literature from around the world and cross cultures
0: because meditation is hard, right? It's not something like okay, let me start meditating tomorrow, <laughs> and then you yep. automatically okay Zen. You know, you're zen yeah, with yourself it, and it's hard. Like get I, distracted. You get
1: distracted. Get distracted. Like, what am I eating for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, so this LSD assisted, um, this assistance that, yeah, that LSD can provide or other drugs can provide just makes that whole process quicker. Is that it?
3: Or, or it just shows you, it gives you a, a look at what it would be like to be much more advanced. And that could be a source of motivation and inspiration, basically. All right. So So that seemed to be the case. Yeah. yeah, It's interesting
0: because, so I think we should get, you know, step a couple steps back just to talk about mental health, mental illness, you know, the concept of mental illness. According to you, Manish, what is it?
3: Of mental illness, I feel like, I mean, that's a big question, first of all. (laughs) Huge question. From my perspective, I I think hmm, a lot of it is the consequences of things that are unintegrated or unacknowledged. Um, that's how I'd call it uh, in a sense, because for example, we somebody suffers from anxiety or, or very poor self-esteem and this leads to anxiety and depression and, and inability to function as they want to. Right. Um, but a lot of the times that self-esteem issue is rooted in childhood experiences. It's rooted in being bullied and Maybe parents gave you a hard time, didn't give you the validation you wanted yeah. um, or told you that you were inherently bad in, this, in a sense. Yeah. And these things translate into the various disorders afterwards, right? So I really think like, like the, the ideology, like the underpinnings of a lot of distinct disorders uh, comes just from a very similar roots and uh, which are just experience, adverse experiences when we're younger, uh, compounded with our sensitivity, which is due to genetics. Um, and also the way they manifest, um, is also like very related to genetics and your sensitivities. So one person might undergo a trauma traumatic experience and their response is to be, um, you know, a manic depressive or, or, and and like really have these spurts of crazy energy
0: Mm -hmm.
3: and then go down. And whereas another person might just be like really, you know, uh, suffer from depression and be low energy all the time. Or another person might get ADHD because they need to dissociate from that traumatic experience And now their attention is hard to control. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that a lot of mental illness is again, like unintegrated trauma or adverse experiences, or even just um, internalized beliefs and behavior patterns that were adaptive at some point Mm -hmm. to make you feel safe and are no longer adaptive, but they're so ingrained that we can't escape them. Yeah. So interesting
1: because
0: those would lead us to, you know, to find the treatments, the correct treatments. Or such illnesses, because if we understand where it stems from, then yeah. we would be able to address those issues.
1: And it seems like it's related to the default mode network in many ways, in yeah. of self and identity. Because you were
0: mentioning the default mode network, right, is a regroupment of experiences, grows with the number of experiences that you have. So if mm-hmm. we have maladaptive experiences or adverse, as you said, experiences during youth, would that, in other words... Screw up your default mode network in, in yeah.
3: a way. It's a cool framework of thinking about it because we were just talking about how our we live through our expectations, which are encoded by the default mode network. And if these expectations are all negative, expectation is the world is a is a bad place. It, we have to be scared of it. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't want the best for me. You know, if you internalize that as a child, then yeah, you're gonna be living through that lens and you it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because now you're you're expecting it and you almost seek it out. Because you think you want confirmation for your world model, which is what people want, right? Sure. I really think that's a big factor. Yeah.
1: So, getting a bit more personal, since you know this is about mental health and grad students, I wanted to ask a question about about mental health for you in this graduate experience, and you know you can comment in on how however general or specific you want. But in this time of of either the COVID or before before the pandemic even, what was mental health like for you? And um, did did any of this meditation or what was some coping or um, success uh, tactics that you used to help with mm-hmm. mental health?
3: Yeah, for me, it's always been um, to live a very balanced life. So I've always like had strong boundaries with myself, like no working on grad student stuff after, let's say, five or six p.m. And uh, I make time for myself. I always play my guitar. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the I guitar. maintain. I maintain half an hour to an hour guitar almost every day for most of grad school. And, um, you know, I meditate every morning, every night. I w- go to the gym three, four times a week. I interact with my girlfriend. I, you know, I very much make a, a very conscious explicit effort to incorporate different aspects to my life. Um, but how, have-
0: how do you do it? Because you have so much on your plate, you know, you have The Psychedelic Scientist, which is a YouTube page, Instagram page with amazing content of psychedelics. You have a actualization coaching uh, program on Instagram as well, Manish Gurdon Coaching. And you are implicated in all kinds of different startups in the world of psychedelics. How do you manage all that and still, you know, live a balanced, as you say, life?
3: Um, So, I mean, for me, I'm very, my personality, my temperament is very oriented towards structure. So I'm very good at scheduling and doing the same thing every day and, um, you know, operating on a schedule and being efficient with my time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so I think that's kind of what allows me to do it. And I think the, the most, um, the thing that is, uh, the most risky thing for me is succumbing to overwhelm. So if I were to think sit down and think and write out all the things I'm doing, I'd be like, what is this craziness, right. <laughs> but how I try, I do my best to operate. And I think it's through, you know, many years of you know, meditating every day, I compartmentalize my mind. So like I'll be doing something at two o'clock, but then at three, cause I have a whole nother thing I'm doing. I just, just like try to, I remove myself from that and move to the next thing. So I never have everything in my mind at once, basically. And I don't allow my mind to go there. I catch myself and I come back. And again, that's from meditation, I think. Right. And um, also staggering. Uh, like on this day, I'm going to be doing these X, Y, and Z things. And then on the next day, I'm going to do these things. And just really just optimizing, scheduling, structuring. And,
1: uh, yeah, I think you mentioned a lot of really good tactics that I think our listeners could take from that yeah. of you know, having good habits for one, but then also learning how to control anxious thoughts that can kind of subconsciously overwhelm you. Um, What would you say are some default thought practices or thoughts that a grad student may be overwhelmed by and and what would you do to kind of help? Or you can speak from personal experience. What are some, you know, negative thought patterns that you can kind of fall into as a grad student? What would you say to help combat
3: that? Like a very common one, as we all know, for grad students, is like imposter syndrome. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, I'm way over my head. How can <laughs> I be doing these things? <laughs> Why am I like, here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I think for me, the, the way I deal with that is you have to separate the feeling from the thought, right? Mm. So the thought that I'm not enough is a secondary consequence of a feeling in your body. And that feeling is is like... um could be anxiety, it could be fear, um, it could be just like a sinking stomach in your chest, like, oh, I'm way over, uh, way over my head right now. Um, but I think the key is to not let it turn into a story. And so it's like, I feel this right now and notice, note it, it's like, I'm feeling anxiety right now. Don't say like, oh, I'm not, I feel like I'm not enough. Because um, feeling like, Like not enough is not a feeling. What a feeling is, is anxiety. Coming back to the body. The the basic emotions, the basic feelings that we have.
0: You know, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, I feel depressed or I feel anxious. But why, you know, Mm -hmm. try to find, you know, introspectively what causes that depression feeling or that anxious feeling and actually feel, you know, being connected with your emotions. I think that's a huge, huge part.
3: Exactly. And, and you'll notice that when you have that come up and instead of going into story, going into a yeah. mind, which will propagate and amplify it, um, just breathe and relax and, mm. and just feel it. And then it'll, it'll move through you much faster and you'll um. find yourself getting over it. Um, because again, when you, when you have that emotion comes up, you've, you've, you've a decision point. Yeah. One way to go is create it into this big story in your head on how you're not enough and ruminate on it, mm-hmm. which will just strengthen it. It's hold on you. or see it for what it is. It's a feeling that's coming up. That's probably not objectively, you know, accurate. It's just like your own insecurity being triggered. Um, And it's allowing yourself to sit with the feeling without letting yourself go into the story. And over time, you'll notice you're much better at handling that emotion when it comes up.
0: And the meditation is the main aspect behind that. The fact of feeling your emotions and, 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 you know, being at one with them and, being able to control that decision point, because a lot of people, you know, they can't even feel that decision point just yeah, goes yeah. up, right? Let's totally, say. totally. Is that all stemming from your work in meditation, work yeah. meaning
3: your practice? hundred percent, yeah. Like I, I've been a daily meditator since I was maybe 18. I'm 27 uh, in a few days. Uh, and so meditation is such an integral part of how I interact with the world. I don't know how people live without meditating, wow. <laughs> to be honest.
0: So tell us more about what your practice l- sounds like or looks like on a daily basis. Is it, is it something that we can all do?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, definitely. I think everyone, like, everyone goes through the same process when they, when they start meditating. You get really frustrated. Your mind is crazy and you're like, I can't do this. And then uh, the people who get good are people who experience that, but just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying um, and you get better, right? So like meditating is never easy for anybody starting out right? It's just a necessary process. And um, I think a big misconception is that meditation is not thinking about anything. Let's, let's start with that, right? For me, meditation is, encompasses a set of practices which are aimed at allowing you to cultivate greater distance between you and your thoughts and emotions. That's all it is. And, and how it works is, um, for me, when I meditate, let's say, um, one way to do it is by focusing on your breath or focusing on any aspect of your body. And the practice, let's just say the breath for, for ease, you're going to notice just your breathing. So your air going in out Mm. and and you're just trying to stay with it the whole time. And you're going to lose it like no matter what, but the key is when you lose it, noticing that you lost it and come Come back back without judgment, without saying anything about it or thinking anything about it. And that iterative process of focusing, losing it, catching it, refocusing, sustaining, losing it, catching it, refocusing, sustaining. That's what meditation is, that loop. Mm. It's not like a, a, unless you're like, you know, a super advanced meditator where you're just mm-hmm. in focus for like right. extended periods. It's like, a, it's a very dynamic iterative process. Yeah.
1: It's- and I like what you said about having no shame or judgment when you come back, like when you lost it and yeah. came
3: back. Because those are just more thoughts, you know.
1: If I'm struggling with, depression or anxiety, or I want to do something to try to integrate my default mode network or try to uh, work through some childhood trauma. What would you recommend? What would, what are some ways that even without psychedelics, we could still harness some of the benefits of reintegration right now for, for grad
3: students? Mm -hmm. I think um, many things, but I think one is just knowing yourself, knowing yourself well. Uh, What I've done a couple of times in my life is write a structured autobiography. So I kind God of I just like, you know,
0: you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Wow. Totally. like, I, I just like detail, like, you know, as much as I remember, like, I had a not like total detail, obviously, but like in some level of detail, like this was my experiences and, you know, kindergarten to grade four, and then grade four to start out high school, then high school to whatever, up until now, well, last time I did it was like a year ago, but through this process um, of knowing yourself and knowing the significant events that have occurred in your life, um, you can discover like, Oh, that's where that pattern originated. Oh, this is probably why I think this way. And I think expanding your self-awareness through ex- exercises like that and journaling and just analyzing yourself. Like the first step to overcoming things Because if you're not aware of something, you can't overcome it. Right. So I think awareness is always the first step and that can come through through journaling, reflecting, um, just spending time with yourself and allowing yourself to go there and, uh, and uh, and detailing what comes up, right? And uh, taking an and active it, approach. Uh-huh. Totally at the end of the day, it's all about just empowering yourself to take an active role in your own mental health and doing things to change it, you know?
0: So oh, great. So we're gonna invite you again eventually, maybe season two. <laughs> um, cool. Sounds
3: great. Yeah, good. thanks for having me, guys. It's lots of fun.
0: Yeah, Gosh, of course. I mean, speak soon,
3: okay? you too. Take care.